Hi, this is Pete Russos, and I want to welcome you to the Journal of Uproarious Growth podcast. I love the film Defending Your Life. And if you haven't seen it yet, it is very much worth watching. It's dated, but it has a lot to say that I think is relevant to our current times and how fear and shame impede positive change processes. The film stars Albert Brooks, Meryl Streep, and Rip Torn. It's a comedy, but it has a profound message about the importance of challenging our fears and our shame in order for us to grow. The film resonates for me because it captures what I think is the essence of the growth process, learning how to take responsibility for our discomfort. The truth of life is that in order to take adult responsibility for ourselves and in order to grow, we have to be willing to face and challenge our fears. In order to grow, we have to be willing to risk finding out that our worst fears about ourselves are true in order to find out that they are not true. And when we discover that our fears about ourselves are valid, we get to choose whether or not we will own them and do the interpersonal and interpersonal work to change and to be better. These are relational truths, relational choice dilemmas that apply to us as individuals and to every relational entity from the micro level of relationships that are couples and families to the macro level of relationships that form our communities, our organizations, our cities, our states, our nation, and our planet. Affecting change requires confronting the things about ourselves that limit us and cause pain to ourselves and to others. It's about taking responsibility for growing ourselves up and being better. The work often requires a willingness to be honest and authentic with others. And at times the work requires confronting others and being appropriately honest in order to be true to ourselves. This means that growth and change requires that we be willing to risk hurt and disappointment in order to affect change. There is no safe way of doing it. And this is just the way that life is. Substantive growth and change are often really uncomfortable and we have to be willing to tolerate the requisite discomfort in order to grow and affect change. Life is the dynamic interplay between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. The deepest level of this interplay is in our relationships to ourselves. There are then additional layers of this interplay in the relationships that we have with other people. How we think, how we feel, and how we behave has an effect on how those other people think, feel, and behave. And how those other people think, feel, and behave has an impact on us. This is the systemic truth about relational functioning. These processes are operating within all of us as individuals and within all relational systems. Change processes can be initiated by operating differently in any one of the three aspects of life functioning. Different thinking can lead to different feelings, which can lead to different behaviors. Different behaviors can lead to different thoughts and feelings. 
it doesn't matter which of these three areas the differences are initiated in. Doing something different in one area has the potential to affect a difference in the other two. I say has the potential to affect a difference because the positive effect of doing something different is not guaranteed. Awareness alone does not result in substantive change. Meaningful change often requires that we push ourselves through our anxiety, through our fear of failure, those kinds of things, in order to conduct ourselves differently. Our behavior is the end of the line, or where the buck stops, if you will, in which our efforts at change are manifested. An example of this that has to do with racism uh, an example of how awareness alone does not result in substantive change is the huge number of people, and I include myself in this group, who have long been aware and have long thought that racism is abhorrent, but we have not contributed meaningfully with our words, with our actions, and with our dollars to ending it. And as a result, racism continues to exist. Beliefs, no matter how heartfelt they are, if they're not followed through with action, they accomplish nothing towards real change. The beliefs, the thinking, it's important, but if not enacted, the status quo is perpetuated. When it comes to making positive changes in life, most of us wish that the process was linear. We wish that we could feel differently first. Usually we wanna be more comfortable so that we can then think and behave differently. But life does not work this way. My experience is that our feelings are typically the last aspect of life functioning to change, that thoughts and, and or behaviors change before feelings do. People get more comfortable with a new behavior and feel less anxious about it the more they practice the new behavior. The importance of practicing the new behavior that's a thought. The sense of the importance of practicing the new behavior is a thought. Engaging in the practice is the behavior. And the comfort that follows the repeated practice of the new behavior, that's the feeling. That sense of comfort is the feeling. Whenever I'm stuck in a pattern of behavior that I want to change, but that I'm anxious or uncomfortable about, I try to remind myself that change processes are not linear. I use the reminder as a way to push myself to think and behave differently so that I can begin to feel differently. I also talked with clients in our first session together about the importance of using their newly gained awareness, their thoughts, to push through discomfort, their feelings, to practice new growth-oriented behaviors. I want to help people learn how and be willing to tolerate their discomfort more effectively and be willing to experience it more fully. As I know that if we push ourselves to challenge our discomfort, eventually we will become more comfortable. I've done a lot of thinking about the dynamics of shame and have come to the conclusion that we humans tend to think of shame too monolithically, that shame is a bad feeling that should be avoided whenever possible. I regard this view of shame to be too narrow and too limiting. Viewing shame in this way encourages our not taking responsibility for unhealthy behaviors that we really should be taking responsibility for. 
We do this because we want to avoid the feeling of shame rather than experiencing and owning it fully. If we engage our shame, it can be a useful tool that helps us take greater responsibility for our actions, and this leads us to positive change. Shame is actually quite nuanced and contextual, and if we're willing to fully explore our experiences of shame and whatever triggers it, our shame can be a catalyst to positive growth. Doing so, however, requires that we marshal the courage to face our shame and learn from it so that it can help us grow and become better, more mature people. We have much to be ashamed of for our awful history and perpetuation of racism, subjugation, and exploitation. On the micro and macro levels of relationships, we have to be willing to face and take responsibility for our shame and to right the wrongs of inequality and all of the pain that it causes. There's a common expression that feelings are not good or bad, they just are. In this context, shame is a reaction, an emotional reflex to a thought, a situation, or to how others are behaving towards us, or how we are behaving towards others. The form that shame takes within us, however, and the impact that it has on us is determined by how we view shame and its purpose in the human experience. This means that our experience of shame and how it impacts us is ultimately determined by the choices we make about what it means for us and what it says about us and whether or not we need to take responsibility for whatever was going on that triggered the feelings of shame within us in the first place. Whether or not our experience of shame leads to our growing and changing for the better is determined by how we choose to look at our shame and the meaning we choose to give it in those experiences. Instead of thinking of shame as a unipolar discomfort, I believe that a more useful way of thinking about shame is to delineate it into two forms, an antisocial form and a pro-social form. The antisocial form of shame is what we typically think of when we imagine the experience of shame either our own experience or what we imagine someone else goes through when experiencing shame, feeling awful about ourselves and just wanting it to go away. The consequence or the impact of antisocial shame is that we collapse into ourselves. We feel the urge to escape, to recede into the woodwork and become invisible. We just want to stop the feeling, that pain that goes with the experience of antisocial shame. In order to try and get away from the pain, we choose to become less introspective and less self-confronting. We don't want to think about our responsibility in whatever it is that triggered our shame. We want to avoid exploring whether or not there are legitimate reasons for our feeling badly about ourselves and whether or not the trigger is something that we need to take responsibility for or is something that is not our responsibility and that we should not be beating ourselves up for. Antisocial shame results in our getting stuck because we don't take responsibility for our dysfunctional behavior patterns. We can also get stuck when we assume responsibility for things that are not our responsibility, carrying an emotional burden that really is someone else's responsibility. 
someone else whom we might have to confront in order to take mature and appropriate care of ourselves and in order to fulfill our responsibility to our communities. Pro-social shame is a different experience, the result of a different choice, resulting in a different response path forward. Experiencing pro-social shame is still painful, but when we choose to own the pro-social shame form of pain, choose to fully explore why we are feeling it, and choose to face whatever responsibility we have and whatever triggered our shame, we are connecting with our strength and resilience in a way that does not happen with antisocial shame. Antisocial shame separates us from our solid, healthier selves, while pro-social shame reconnects us to our solid, healthier selves. Pro-social shame is motivating and is a catalyst for change, not the inhibitor of change that antisocial shame is. When we engage our pro-social shame and confront ourselves to do the growth work necessary to become more mature, we are behaving with a greater sense of integrity. Antisocial and pro-social shame also get transacted relationally. Antisocial shame is used to cruelly debase someone with the objective of making them feel badly about themselves. Being honest to someone in a deliberately hurtful way is a form of cruelty that weaponizes antisocial shame to land a painful impact. Offering someone negative feedback in an honest and appropriate way may result in their feeling shame, but the delivery of the feedback in an honest and appropriate way is pro-social and more likely to help the person engage their negative feelings about themselves as pro-social shame. We need to think about this even more so now if we are to have honest, appropriate, and effective dialogues about inequality and the attitudes and behaviors that we see in ourselves and in others that are obstacles to change. Some of the most effective parenting that we can do is to allow our children to learn the difference between these two forms of shame and to help them learn to engage their pro-social shame. We can do this by expressing our criticisms in honest and appropriate ways, by modeling the willingness to accept feedback delivered in an honest and appropriate way, and by engaging our own pro-social shame in the ways that we confront ourselves and take responsibility for our own unhealthy relational behaviors. On a societal level, Racism, prejudice, and bigotry use antisocial shame to debase another person or a group of people that they, because of the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, their religion, their gender, their physical disability, or their belief system, are somehow less than us. The awful and sad truth is that on so many different relational levels, the micro and macro, we have much to be rightly ashamed of for the history, practice, and perpetuation of inequality in all its forms. If substantive and enduring change has any chance of happening, we are going to have to face our shame and take responsibility for it in a pro-social way so that we respond powerfully to this moment and share the sacrifices that have to be made to make the interpersonal, the institutional, and the structural changes necessary for the abolishment of inequality and the establishment of truly universal human rights. 
We have collectively been turning away from our shame for all too long now. It's time to finally face it and to feel it so that we can take responsibility for the awful inequities that are not facing and dealing with our shame pro-socially perpetuates. And if we don't face this now, if we let this opportunity pass, if we don't take the responsibility that we need to in order to affect truly substantive change, then shame on us, shame on you, and shame on me. I want to thank you very much for listening. This is Pete Russos, and this has been another episode of the Journal of Uproarious Growth podcast. Be well, folks. Time to bring it home.